Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to GranthamChurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. As Pastor Dave said earlier, this is Mission Sunday here at Grantham Church, and uh, we do this every year where we give attention to local and global missions around the world, uh, which we are specifically doing through our denomination, the Brethren in Christ U.S., And I am happy to introduce our speaker this morning. Kevin Kelly is a graduate of Messiah College. And Kevin's wife, Barbara, is also a Messiah grad. And they have three grown children and two grandchildren. Kevin pastored a Brethren Christ Church in Susquehanna Conference for six years prior to becoming a chaplain in the Federal Bureau of Prisons about 21 years ago. Currently, Kevin works in Washington, D.C. as the Assistant Chaplaincy Administrator for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And he and Barb have recently been accepted into the ministry, or I'm sorry, the Missionary Development Program, seeking discernment of the next phase of ministry as they contemplate retirement from chaplaincy and nursing. Their recent trip to Greece, as some of you heard about in the learning community this morning, grew out of that desire to explore possible paths that God might have in store for them in the future. We're happy to have Kevin with us for this Mission Sunday 2019. Uh, He'll be bringing a message this morning called Preparing the Soil. Please give a warm Grantham Church welcome to Kevin Kelly. I almost feel as if I'm coming home, though I've never been here before, Um, on a Sunday morning anyway. Um, Over the years, I've been influenced by many people who've served in various capacities in this congregation. From way back when Robert Ives was a pastor, he was one of my professors. Terry Brensinger was my advisor at Messiah and married my wife and I. Um, It was wonderful to see John Yates and be reminded Randall Basinger's here. All these folks are part of the pantheon that that I um, really appreciated uh, as I was beginning the formal part of of preparing for ministry. And our current pastor, I'm a member of the Harrisburg Church, Linda Gephardt, many of you certainly know. Uh, So I feel affinity here, though many of you have no idea who I am. I know more about you than you might realize. So in an odd sort of way, it's almost like getting reacquainted with you, though we've never met. But it was over 30 years ago, right across the railroad tracks in Lottie Nelson dining room, where I first took notice of a woman who was going to change my life. Uh, as, As was mentioned before, my wife Barb, she couldn't be with us this morning. She has to work. She works in an emergency room, and those things never shut down. Um, But thinking about coming back to Grantham brought back to my mind uh, the beginning of that relationship, which has obviously been so important. And it's given me reason to reflect on three little words that Barb and I have shared 
with each other nearly every day of our marriage, often multiple times a day. They're common words, and I'm sure many of you who've been married uh, for any length of time share this in common with us. You can probably guess what these three little words are. They've come to be such a natural part of our mutual communication. They punctuate almost everything that we do. Those three words? Are you ready? <laughs> Thanks for taking the bait, brother. We say those words just before going out to eat, before beginning working on a joint project, when we need a break while preparing for vacation, getting ready to travel to Greece. All kinds of situations compel us to ask each other this question. So I invite you to consider these three little words as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 13. Beginning at verse 3, and I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read through to verse 9 as we begin. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pray with me for a moment. Father, you are holy. We've come to worship you this morning because you alone are worthy of such adoration. We come to surrender to your will. And we ask today for your kingdom to come into this world that we depend on you to provide everything that we need to share in the work of your kingdom. We ask you to treat us as we treat others, to forgive us according to the measure that we forgive others. And through it all, guide and direct our footsteps into your loving presence where we can give you glory, honor, and praise forever. Amen. Do you ever notice that it's really easy to count how many seeds there are in an apple? You slice it down the middle. But it's virtually impossible to count how many apples there are in a seed. I occasionally marvel at the fact that each seed contains the potential for growth for some sort of plant, whatever that seed might represent, that can over time generate even more seeds. They're just waiting around for someone to plant them. We got a bunch of packets in my garage on a shelf in the corner that occasionally I have to dust the cobwebs off because they've been there for a long time. Nobody's taken the occasion to pull them out and plant them. It would be super easy to just 
rip open, although those envelopes are kind of hard, you know, the, the glue, you can't really, you gotta kind of destroy the package, so that's why they stay in their package for so long. But it would be super easy to rip open the package and just throw them out on the ground. But we don't do that because we know that would be one of the most expensive ways to feed the birds, right? Jesus, in this passage that we read, uses the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. How do we get ready to hear what it is that God has to say for us? Later, further on in chapter 13 of Matthew, in verse 19, Jesus said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The gospel makes little to no sense until we prepare our soul to receive it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We live in, a, in an age that often says, seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. But when it comes to the knowledge of the kingdom of God, perhaps it's more true to say believing is seeing. The first step in breaking up that hard-packed soil of our soul is true worship. It's one of the reasons we open church services the way we do. We call ourselves to an attitude of worship where we intentionally reflect on the awesomeness and the power of God. We think about his holiness. We consider his worthiness, his awesomeness, if that's an appropriate word. And in that experience, we become humble to the point that we are able to begin to receive the message of God's good news that he has for our lives. We have the opportunity to worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, is it a quarter days a year? And we should be seeking ways to worship God all the time. It shouldn't be reserved only for this period. We've got three hours, right? I like to make people nervous when they don't know me. But it shouldn't only be reserved for formal church activities. Anytime we turn our inward gaze in a Godward direction, we have an opportunity to worship. Sometimes, I confess, I'll point the browser on my computer to the Hubble telescope page and just download a picture of the day just to remind myself that the God whom we serve made that. Pretty amazing when you think about it. And with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, I confess that after Easter and Christmas, my most celebrated religious holiday is February 2nd. You know what that is? Groundhog Day, because it's the only day I now allow myself to watch the movie of the same name. <laughs> in part because I think it's hilarious, but also in part because it's an opportunity to worship. Because when you think about the main theme of that movie, it's answering the question, what would you do with eternity? And if that's not a God-packed question, I don't know what it is. My point is that we can use almost any opportunity and should be looking for any opportunity to serve as an occasion for worship. 
So I'm going to ask you the question this morning, are you ready to truly worship God all the time? I remember a time when I was playing racquetball regularly and we had a set time to meet with a group of guys and I went one afternoon and nobody showed up. So I was a little bit frustrated and irritated that nobody had texted or emailed me to tell me they weren't going to be there. And I was pacing back and forth in front of the court when this strange man walked by with his racquetball gear in tow and he asked if I was up for a game. And I felt like an answer to prayer, like, absolutely. Uh, he was just in town visiting his son and, and uh, was looking to, to pick up a game. So I was all excited. We got into the racquetball court and began warming up. Which, by the way, if anybody has influence in Messiah College to open up the old racquetball courts, I wouldn't mind. <clears throat> but at any rate, as we were warming up, I was hitting the ball from the back corner to the front corner just to kind of loosen up and, and, and get my mobility and accuracy. And I was hitting the ball all over the wall. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, this strange man who I had just met was in the other corner warming up the same way but instead of the chaotic pattern that I was creating, he was hitting the ball in the same spot, about the size of a teacup. I swallowed hard and realized I was in for a treat. And the man was gracious, he was kind, but it was clear I offered absolutely no challenge to him. We played three games, I scored six points. One the first game, two the second, and three the third. And it wasn't because I got better, it's just because he realized he didn't have to try anymore. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise you to learn that at the end of the third game, when we came out of the racquetball court, I told him what he had done wrong for those six points. And I tried to give him pointers of how he could improve his game. <laughs> of course, I didn't do that. I was sufficiently humbled, and I immediately knew I was not the teacher. At best, I was the student. He cleaned my clock. True worship breaks up the hardness of our soul and compels us to submit and surrender to the power that is God. And it forces us to stop pretending that we know more than God. And it becomes the most natural reaction when we've genuinely worshiped God to say, whatever you want, I know is best for me. We lived in the Arizona desert for a little over a year. And it was amazing to see how during the summer, rain would come and immediately there'd be this display of colors from the seeds that were stuck in the ground. And, and it was just this beautiful display during what they called the monsoon season, which really means it's 10 days of 100 degree temperatures in a row. They call that the monsoon season because every day at about five o'clock, there was a thunderstorm that lasted about 10 minutes. And it would produce some pretty rapid growth, but the heat of the desert couldn't sustain it. It was colorful for a minute. It was flashy, it was pretty, and, and then it was dead. It was a desert after all. Seeds on the rocky places scorched and withered. In Matthew 13, 20, Jesus said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when the affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately 
he falls away. When we genuinely experience and encounter God through worship, we most naturally surrender to his will. We want his kingdom to be realized in our lives, and we soon realize how much we need to depend on God to give us what we need to sustain that growth. Whatever we try to do in our own strength is destined to eventually wither and die if it's not dependent on God for the outcome. We can be very busy doing God's work or thinking we're doing God's work. But to quote Hudson Taylor, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. So I ask you the question this morning, are you ready to fully depend on God to provide you with everything that you need to live the life of his kingdom in abundance? I live in the woods. In fact, that's one of my email addresses. I live in the woods. I'm not gonna tell you what the domain is because I don't wanna get bombarded with harassing emails, but I've secretly always wanted to have a grove of fruit trees in my backyard. I, have, I live in the country with lots of land around me, so I decided one day to buy a, a case of those plastic pieces of fruit, you know, the waxy-looking oranges and apples, and some camouflage duct tape <clears throat> so that at least in the spring, I, I taped all these to the maple and oak trees in my backyard. And it's just beautiful. I look out the window, I got, a, I got an apple orchard out in my back window. Looks absolutely beautiful. Thank you for recognizing the absurdity of that image. Trees don't become fruit trees by attaching what looks like fruit to their branches. But sometimes I wonder if we don't behave in such a way that we put on an appearance of fruit of the kingdom that's not really there. We think we know how God's gonna grow his kingdom and if we aren't careful, we anticipate what his fruit's gonna look like, so let's just kind of put on this front, this facade. Let's fake it till we make it, as they say. But the fruit of God's kingdom is manifested through lives that reflect Christ alive in us. We love as Christ loves. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We treat others as we wish to be treated. That's the natural outgrowth of dependence on God. We can't pretend that kind of love. It's the fruit of being obedient, of worshiping, surrendering, and depending on God. So I ask you the question this morning, are you ready to experience the real fruit of God's kingdom? Every year it's my task to fire up the rototiller and get our garden ready. I've noticed that the first time I do it after the winter thaw and the early spring is the hardest swipe. It's difficult to break up the, the grass and the weeds that have grown. But it's necessary. We've got to clear it up. You can't just throw the seeds on that if the soil hasn't been prepared. So each year we till the garden until it's beautiful, the soil is all broken up, it's easy to manipulate, and most of all we get rid of all the weeds and the other growth. And it, look great. it looks great when I'm finished tilling it. I always feel this sense of pride when I look back on the, the rows that I've just uh, finished tilling. But invariably, summer gets a hold of us and we don't keep up with it and the weeds grow back really quickly. And more often than not, our experience has been because it's summertime and we want to go to the shore and we want to go do all kinds of fun things that the weeds overtake our garden and, and our harvest suffers. This year I, I tilled it and two or three weeks after I tilled it, nobody had gotten around to plant anything and it was all full of 
just weeds again, so I had to till it again. But I noticed something. The second time I did it, two or three weeks later, it was a lot easier to till if I hadn't let those weeds take firm root. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Have you ever noticed it takes much less effort to remove the weeds if you don't give them much time to grow? If we come back to the place of worship and re-surrender and again renew our dependence on God and behave according to the way God leads and directs us to behave, it's a whole lot easier to get back into the right frame of mind. When we were at Camp Moria in Greece last month, there were seven of us who went and we wrestled emotionally and intellectually about how effective our efforts were. There were 14,000 refugees, we called them POCs, points, people of concern. 14,000 people in a camp designed to hold. I heard 4,000, I heard today 5,000. Either way, it's too many people. The need was huge. We recognized we were only there for two weeks, right? And most of these people were living in conditions, some of them well over a year, often multiple years. We came in as low men and women on the totem pole. We had no power or influence over the structures of the camp. We were followers and servants in our efforts. We weren't leaders of the organization. We struggled with very real communication barriers. The vast majority spoke Farsi. The second most common language was Arabic. I speak neither. We couldn't effectively bring change to a system in two weeks, a system that's been going on for years, dealing with a global crisis that nobody has the answer for. It truly felt like all our efforts, and we spent a lot of time preparing. Vicki will share, uh, as soon as I'm done, a little bit of our story. But we felt like this was a drop in the ocean, all of our efforts it was nearly impossible to recognize what, if any, fruit our efforts were producing. It was a little discouraging, I think, for many of us on the team. But then God, but then God. A few days ago, I slipped some earbuds in my ears. This was after we came home, and I'm reflecting on what are, what are we going to share with you? And I hit the shuffle button. It's a lovely mindless button on your music player, whatever you, right? The first song that came on my phone was Keith Green's recording of The Sheep and the Goats, many of you are familiar with, coming from Matthew 25. And then just let me read the scripture that I really believe this was God speaking into my life in a way that I needed. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It seems like I had overlooked the obvious. We've been planning this trip for months. Vicki helped us prepare, think, answer questions. We were compelled to come to Camp Moriah, not because the refuge wanted us there, but because God values what's going on there. That's why we were there. I was confused because the fruit I expected was akin to plastic apples duct taped on a tree. I would have been probably been gratified to see evidence that somehow I had improved conditions of the camp or transformed somebody's life radically. <clears throat> but God's fruit is so much better than what I can imagine. In God's economy, it's service in his name, and that's credited to a much bigger account. And as much as we do it to even the very least, we do it unto him. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Little did I suspect God's fruit would look like it did after going for our short little trip to Greece. But he seems to be ready to teach me lessons I didn't realize I needed to learn, and he's ready to teach us lessons we didn't know we need to learn. In Sunday school, uh, Vicki was trying to say seeds are being planted, and she got tongue-tied, and she said, she started to say plants are being and I heard that and I thought, that's brilliant. Plants are being seeded. Think about that. God's in the business of doing things that we can't do. We can plant a seed, but only God can seed a plant. We shared the Lord's Prayer together earlier. And then after I do this, Vicki's going to come and share what's on her heart, but I, <clears throat> I want us to just close our eyes and I'm, I'm going to lead us in a version of the Lord's Prayer. So pray with me in your hearts. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. May your kingdom come and your will be done here in Grantham, in Pennsylvania, in America and the whole world, just as it is in heaven. Give us today all that we need for today. Make us become genuine in our relationship with you, forgiving others as we've been forgiven, loving others as we've been loved, treating others as you've treated us.
and then lead us away from evil. Guide our footsteps to faithful obedience to you in all that we do, that our lives will bear your fruit for your kingdom, for your power, and for your glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Kevin, for the challenge for all of us. Um, I wanted to share a little bit this morning some testimonies of some of our trip participants and some of the things we experienced, um, some of the things that uh, God's working on my heart. Um, the, the experience that we had was pretty much like no other that you really can describe. Um, Short-term trips are different for everybody and different reasons we do different trips. Um, this one was challenging in its own way, and Kevin alluded to some of those things already. Um, I just want to kind of paint a picture, and I think I have this on now. Yeah. Just to show you a little bit of where the refugees that we met and interacted with, where they came from. So many of them were from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, some from Yemen, Syria. So I tried to draw this little circles around them and like the journey they went to to that little island, little tiny island there in Lesbos, Greece, off of Turkey. Many of them, you know, were fleeing all that they went this distance in hope of a better life in Europe. And all of them made that long journey. And when they get to um, Turkey, that little section of, land, of water there to get to Lesbos, it's four miles of waters that they have to cross to get to um, freedom or safety, a new life for themselves. You know, as you can, so many people from the Middle East, Middle Eastern countries, are, which are closed for many of us to get into to share the gospel. Many of them are going to areas where we can share the gospel, in Greece or even here in the United States. God is at work and moving people. He wants all people to learn of him and know him and we all play a part in that in some way. So these people have traveled long distances, a long way to come, and they're at the border of Turkey, ready to cross the water. Um, I want you to imagine with me a little bit this morning. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to paint a picture for you to see maybe what they were feeling and experiencing. If you're a refugee getting in a boat to cross the waters from Turkey to Lesbos. So if you close your eyes and listen. Most boat crossings happen at night. It's dark and cold. You may or may not be with family members, probably not at least all of them. You may or may not get a life jacket. You've never been near a large body of water and most likely cannot swim. You, along with 40 to 60 other people, are piled into a large rubber raft after paying a smuggler a lot of money to get yourself out of there. They start the boat and push you off into the water to start the four-mile crossing over to Greece. You don't know if the Turkish Coast Guard's going to catch you or stop you. If they do, you'll have to go back to your home country, which you just worked so hard to leave. If your boat reaches the international waterline, you're free, or so you think. You arrive on the shores of Greece. You might be greeted by someone with some dry clothes, a blanket, and some water. Then you're bussed to Moria Camp. You don't know anyone. You don't know the language, you don't know what's going to happen, but yet you still have hope that this is better than what you left. As the bus draws near to the camp, you see lots of white tarps and tents and boxes and all scattered across the hillside. 
you don't know that there are already 14,000 people there in a space designed for four or five or 6,000 people, whatever. You get off the bus and enter Moria Camp. Moria Camp is an old prison camp. There's lots of chain link fence around with gates and barbed wire. As you walk up the hill entering the camp to go to the new arrivals area, you walk a path that's lined on both sides, just packed full of dwellings, tents, boxes. Each dwelling has a number painted on it. Some have tarps, some tents have tarps, some don't, some have pallets, some don't. For as far as you can see, these types of dwellings are everywhere, crowded in all spaces. There are overflowing dumpsters everywhere. The many smells wafting through camp range from sweet smells of donuts or other delicious food cooking to the not-so-fragrant smells of body odor, sewage, and garbage. You're taken to the new arrivals area, and if you haven't already received it, you're going to get a set of clothing, a hygiene kit, a blanket, or a sleeping bag. Then you're placed in the holding area of the new arrivals with several hundred other people that just arrived. You might be there for a day or two until housing becomes available for you. You're tired, you're scared, yet you're hopeful. Go ahead and open your eyes. We as Christians, and we as our team that was there in Moria, were on the island to greet them, to love them, to receive them, to welcome them, to meet basic human needs, to show them love and care. Even though we couldn't speak the language, we can still love them with a smile and share a welcoming embrace. You know, as Kevin shared, we did wrestle a lot with the doing and what, what are we doing and how can we make a difference and um, there was really a lot of challenging for, it was challenging for each of us on the team to kind of process through that. Um, but the people that, I'll share a few testimonies of the people that we met and were able to impact in some way, um, we have to believe that we planted some seeds, you know, and that God does the rest. I want to highlight this report, and it's probably it's too small that you can't really read everything, but we get a re- the report showed up, um, this is a, telling you information about the week before we got to camp. Basically that 181 boats started their trip to Greece carrying 5,915 people, but 20, 125 boats were stopped and only 1,776 of those 5,915 people got to Greece. Those 1,776 people arrived in a week on 56 different boats. 1,118 people were transferred to Athens that week. But you can see we, they received 1,700 and 1,100 went out, so they're still not keeping up with people coming in and out. The camp you know, is definitely full and overcrowded. Our team of seven that went in, this is our team, we realized towards the end of the trip that we represented all the decades. <laughs> we had people from 20 to 70, age 20 to 70 on our team, and it was a beautiful thing. Uh, we gelled really well, everybody got, to, got along. We did a lot of preparation, as Kevin mentioned. We did a lot of preparing ahead of time and praying together and preparing with what we were gonna be getting into. So there's a father and daughter on the team, Eric and Sarah. They're from Hope Born in Christ in, La- in Lancaster, that church in Lancaster. Kevin and his wife, Barb, they're from Harrisburg, um, and Perry, He's from uh, Summit View Church in New Holland area in Pennsylvania. And then uh, Lisa Hernandez, who David had mentioned earlier, you, you um, support, she joined us, um, joined our team. She serves in the Middle East, but she joined us for the two weeks there. 
Uh, it, was a, it was a joy to have her on the team. She was able to use her Arabic, which was kind of fun ahead of time. Leading into the trip, I kept telling, as I was talking with people that we were going to meet, different ministries that we were going to partner with that do Bible studies and things like that. And I said, you know, we have, I was giving them the demographics of our team. And I did mention, you know, that we had a prison chaplain, you know, we had a uh, several other people. And then I also said that we have somebody that speaks Arabic. And I told Lisa this and Lisa says, well, I don't speak that much Arabic. I'm like, oh yes, you do. You have way more Arabic than the rest of us. <laughs> and she was pleasantly surprised and also very encouraged as she was there. Uh, it was really fun to see her using the stuff that she's learning. And she was a huge asset and was able to minister to people in different ways that we could not. So that was a beautiful thing to be, be able to watch and to see. And early on in our trip, you know, when we were struggling, like we, Kevin and I met, had mentioned too, that we're struggling with what difference are we making and how can we do anything here and is, what's the point of this? You know, it's just the challenge of all that. Um, Eric shared that something he felt God was saying to him at some point leading up the trip was just love the person in front of you. That became our team mantra, so to speak. Um, it helped us to refocus and really understand, you know, we are here as God's servants and we're just to do whatever's in front of us. We're going to love the person in front of us and um, bring some joy into somebody's life in the midst of their pain and um, God can do the rest. So it was a joy to um, be able to refocus in that way. So I want to highlight, um, we have not even been home a week yet. We just got home tomorrow. We would have arrived home a week. So we haven't been home a week um, Perry just arrived home, I think, yesterday. He took some vacation time and was, went to Paris, so he was going to gallivant around Paris and the art galleries and such. Um, so the other team members couldn't be here this morning to um, share any of their testimonies, but I did ask them if they wanted to highlight anything specifically um, that stood out to them. So I'm going to kind of speak on their behalf in some ways. Um, I'll share a couple things on my own for my own personal experience. So early on in the trip, the first one of the first days, Sarah, Lisa, and I were had the opportunity to uh, be we're in a certain section of the camp, and um, I forget what we were even doing, but we ended up being invited into a tent of 10 women from Somalia. And they said, come, you know, come in and sit, have tea with us. So we sat and visited with them, and those were my favorite kind of experiences when we have opportunity to visit with them. Um, several spoke English, some were Arabic, so Lisa was able to talk to, you know, use her Arabic skills there too. And we just really had a beautiful, nice visit with these women and hearing their stories, hearing where they've come from, what their dreams are, what they hope to, where they hope to go. And, um, you know, we, we also, as, a, as the you know, U.S. people coming in from the U.S., um, there's a law, a Greek law in the camp, like you, you're not allowed to proselytize. You can't share the gospel in the camp. It's against the law and you can't be preaching. And, but, you know, there was a huge sense when we were visiting these women, I wanted to pray for them. I just felt like I needed to pray over them and pray for them. And so Lisa and I were like, I said, I want to pray for them. And she's like, are we allowed to? And I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying on behalf of your relief. I'm not praying on behalf of another organization. I'm just praying as me, Vicki, a believer in Jesus, and I want to bless them, you know. And she's like, yeah, I, I agree. So we, we did, and she asked them if it was okay, you know, and they appreciated that, and we were able to spend some time praying with them and praying over them. It was beautiful. And we have to see them sometimes throughout the week, the two weeks we were there. We visit, we'd run into them and be able to greet them and Again, I don't know what difference that made, but I felt like we were obedient to what God asked us to do, and we did it, and it was a, a beautiful to be part of that. Um, one of the other special memories that I have was on the, one of the last evenings we were there, and Kevin and I were working in the new arrivals area where we were packing bags, handing out these materials to people that had just arrived within the last day or so. So it's a big garbage bag full of their clothing, you know, sleeping bags, and mats, and 
bringing ponchos and things like that. And there was this family from Afghanistan and they of um, two parents and I, they had two small children, a boy and a girl, and I don't remember if they had more or not, but the little boy was the cutest thing ever. Um, and I think he might have been three, I don't know. Um, but you know, we had, there was five of them in the family. So we had five sleeping bags on top and you know, I'm handing this stuff to them and he sees through the door, there's other sleeping bags on the shelf. And he's pointing to one that he wants. And you know, we're not supposed to do exchanges. You can't do exchanges for 14,000 people. Like, you can't do it for everybody. But he just kept pointing, and we're like, no. And Kevin's inside. He went, this it was a green one. And his eyes lit up. He wanted the green sleeping bag. Well, okay, you can have the green sleeping bag. So we exchanged it out, you know, and he, the smile, on he, his beaming smile was, I mean, it was just amazing. And then his sister, she wants in on this action. You know, his, she's a little older, maybe seven or something, and she did the same sort of thing. She wanted to, so we traded out her sleeping bag. Well, just that simple act of kindness, of giving them a sleeping bag that they wanted. And the, the family, just the, the moment we shared with the family, the parents, just the appreciation they could, you could see they felt, um, what a gift, that was a gift. Um, other people did observe that, other refugees re observed that, and then they tried to get some sleeping bags and we had to turn some away, because they were adults, they weren't that cute. You know, this little boy was cute, so I'm telling you. <laughs> so we had to draw the line, of course, but and explain to them, you know, no, sorry, we can't. But, um, that was a sweet memory just to be able to bring some happiness in the sleeping bag, in the darkness that they're in the midst of. Um, Lisa shared something. She was on Information Desk one day, which Information Desk is a glorified customer service desk where all the refugees come and it's chaos and it's awful. I would, I, it's my least favorite place to be there, but language is a challenge. That's also why it's more challenging for me. But she was able to use her Arabic and answer some questions and, you know, you know she shared, um, I'm going to read what she said because I want to make sure I get it correctly because she, so she says, one of the days I was working in the camp at the info desk, I was able to help an Arab man with something that he needed. At the end of our conversation, when he was about to leave and half turned away from me, he thanked me and I bowed my head and tapped the top of it. In Arab culture, I was saying Ali Razi from my head, meaning my pleasure to help you. When he saw that, he turned back around to face me and smiled, and I felt like he gave me a you-see-me type of smile. That experience was very encouraging because I felt that amid the chaos, I was able to show some familiarity to someone that was far from home. I didn't know anything about that culture, and that's what that meant, but for her to be able to share that and use that gift and to connect in that way, that that person could have some experience of somebody does see me and they understand me. Um, what, a, what a gift that was. Sarah, um, she's the 20-something-year-old on our team, and she, she actually works among the refugees in Lancaster City. She works at the Stroopy Company, so she um, has had some experience in working with different cultures there, too. But she, one morning, uh, when she was having her quiet time by the water, she was walking back towards the hotel, and she saw an Afghani family sitting by the water, um, a family of five. They had a blanket out, and they were having their breakfast. And, she just kind of was walking by and waved to them and smiled and said hello, and they invited her over to sit with them. And um, so she ended up having some breakfast with them. They were offering her tea and biscuits and cookies and bread, and um, she was describing how humbling that was for them to, or for her to be invited into that um, family time, as well as um, just humbling that they're giving her things that they, out of the things they don't have. You know, so she was, that was a special moment for her. Um, and she ended up seeing them a couple times later throughout the camp. And um, one of the other fun experiences was with Kevin and Perry. They were working in the section with minor boys. So there's probably 1,500 boys that are under the age of 18 that are there without pa families or parents. And they're in a section that's gated off separate from the huge part of camp. 
along with single women and single women with children. They're all considered more vulnerable, so they're kind of in a, more of a protected area of the camp. So one evening, Perry and, um, well, actually, we were, we were on evening shift quite a bit, so a lot of times we were involved in that section quite, a, quite often, and um, Eric got to play sports with the, the kids, which he was ecstatic about. Leading up to the, the team meetings, he would always ask me, Vicki, can I take a ball and play with the kids in the camp? I was like, no, you can't take a ball and play in the, in the camp, because if you toss one ball in the camp and these 14,000 people, I, I, you don't even know what's going to happen. No, you can't take a ball. So that was really a challenge for him because he loves sports and that's how he interacts with kids. But God answered a prayer for him that, that we were working the evening shift and having to be in that minor section. They have a basketball net there and areas for the kids to play. Eric was playing basketball with kids almost every night and I was able to do that. And, but I was getting back to Perry and Kevin's story was there was five minor boys that were given a transfer ticket to be leaving the camp. They're going to be, they were celebrating, they're leaving the camp, moving on to Athens and going to continue their journey on. So they were celebrating that they were getting out of the camp. And Perry and Kevin got to be able to be part of that and have a dance celebration that I didn't get to see. I would have liked to see that, but did not get to see that. So those are some quick highlights. I mean, I could obviously talk forever, um, but I can't do that. And we, we aren't supposed to stay for three hours, right? So, but the trip, um, like I said, was a unique experience that you know, God is bringing the world to us. And he's doing it here too. You know, I'm here, of course, representing BICUS World Missions, like the global church and the global missions, but you can do local missions at home, and I know you all are involved in doing that here at Grantham, too. Um, I would encourage you to be loving the people that are in front of you and really seeing them, you know, taking your time to see them. And if you want to have partnership with us, and we, we do have some opportunities of some trips coming up this in 2020, you know, we're looking to take a team to Dearborn, Michigan in February. Dearborn, Michigan is where the largest population of Arab Muslim people live in the United States. We took a learning trip, a leadership team went there to explore opportunities to serve and ways if BIC should get connected. And um, I had nev I've never been to a Middle Eastern country, um, but I felt like I was in a Middle Eastern country in Dearborn, Michigan. All the storefronts are in Arabic. There was more people walking, more women in hijabs and more, I saw Arab culture like I've never seen before. Um, I didn't, I'd heard that this was the biggest location for these, this group of people and I wasn't really believing it until I actually saw it. Um, but there are ways that we can plug in and connect there. We actually have a, a young adult woman who's living there now. She's in our missionary development program as well. But they do Arabic classes there. They teach the same language school, like the stuff that leads us learning in, in the Middle East. The same curriculum is used here in Dearborn. So we are using this as a stepping stone to have some of our workers be prepared to go. But this trip in February will be a chance for you to learn about work that's being done there and how you can take some of those things home and use those practices here, um, reaching Muslims around you. In Africa, um, in August and late September, August and September next year, we're taking a team to Africa. That'll be a cross-denominational, no, cross-church multiple church trip. <laughs> so there's several churches that we're talking with, uh, you're one of them, um, to be partnering with us to take a team there to explore some of current work, like how the missions was established, as well as you know current work that's going on and what, what the need is there in Mozambique. So that'll be a learning trip as well. And then we're going back to, we're planning to go back to Lesbos, Greece in October again next year with another team. So you know, the purpose of short-term trips is for people to have opportunities to discern a calling cross-cultural work and to learn more about themselves and their, your gifts and how you fit in the kingdom work. You know, participants will gain a global experience, a global perspective, and your hearts will be awakened to God's purpose. Some of the trips do allow for more interaction with our global church and our cross-cultural workers, which will also help you to discern a call. 
So short-term trips are not just to have a fun place to get away and go to. Um, you do get to see some nice things most times, um, but it's really about what God wants to do in, you, in your life, through your life, in your heart, and we want to just challenge you in that. So, you know, each of us have a part to play in, in this, and as Kevin said, are, we, are you ready? Are you ready to get in there? Are you going to get in the game, you know? I feel like the church needs to wake up. And I'm saying the church, not just this church, not me. I, I need to wake up. The church needs to wake up. God is bringing the world to us, and his heart cries for everybody to know him and learn of him and accept him and be part of his kingdom and his family. And each of us play a part in, in helping that happen. So I just challenge you this morning, you know, wake up and what's God asking you to do? I'll be out at the table if you want to talk about anything. I'm always available to chat. So thanks.